All right, let's get to see all of you here. We're uh, going through a series on Genesis. Um, and we're going to tonight talk about the Tower of Babel. And we're going to talk about the two cities that exist in the Bible. Um, but I want to kind of get you up to, to speed. In this series on Genesis, what we're doing is just kind of taking looks at the big events and the big people of Genesis. And so we've talked about creation, how God created the world and he declared it good. We talked about the fall and how man disobeyed and was kicked out of the garden. We talked about what it means to be an image bearer. We talked about Cain and Abel. Last week we talked about Noah's Ark. We touched on uh, Enoch. So we've covered a lot of characters so far in this little short span of history. But what I want you to hold on to um, as we talk about the Tower of Babel are, are two things. One is that in the garden, as I said last week and the week before, when God created you and I in his image, that implies a couple things. And number one, it implies that God gave us something, something important. He gave us his character, or he gave us his name. And when we talk about God's name and God's character, we use a word in church called holiness. But in life outside of these little tiny walls, we don't go around talking about holiness very much. It's not something, it's not a word we use. So let me help you think about holiness. God's holiness means that he's sacred. It means that he's sane. There's no insanity in him. And it means that he's righteous or he's right. So when God gives us his name, he's giving us his holiness. And so he's giving us his rightness, his sanity, and he's making us sacred. The second part of image bearing we found out in the story was that God gave us a job, a job for all of us. And that was to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth and rule it. So all of us have this job, this thing we're supposed to do, that's part of bearing God's image, that's different than all the other creatures. And the third thing is that God gives us relationship. He gives us marriage. He gives us intimacy between each other. In fact, he says inside the garden when he creates Adam that it's not good for Adam to be alone. That doing life by ourselves is not the way it was supposed to be. So that's kind of when you think about image bearing, you can think about those three things. That you have relationship, that you have a job, and that you have holiness. Now when we, when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell, they disobeyed, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened to that image is that God removed himself, the partnership part of it. So instead of us being holy and, and sacred and sane and righteous, we became corrupt, we became insane, and we became profane. So that's kind of who we have become with, when God removes himself. And our job now, the curse tell, told us that now when we work against the soil, you know, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't cooperate with us. If you go in my backyard and look at my garden, you'll understand that. It has weeds this high because there's just no cooperation between me and the garden. And if you've ever tried to build anything that Ikea gives you or that you buy at Ikea, you know that there's a curse, right? Because it's very, very, very difficult to build their furniture, right? Or any kind of furniture like from Target, you know, or Walmart. You know there's a curse because it never works right. And... The last part of our image that, that got messed up was our relationships. So now, in our marriages and in our relationships in general, 
in society, we're always fighting against each other because God has removed himself, and so we've become the center. So as we've gone along and looked at God's interaction with us as we've been sent out of the garden, we've looked at Noah's Ark, and now we're going to look at the Tower of Babel, which comes right after Noah's Ark. Okay, So Noah and his family get off the ark, and there are three brothers, um, Japheth, Shem, and Ham, and they're kind of the, the originators of society. Now, one of the other things we need to keep in mind is that as you listen to the narrative, there's always this, this idea within the narrative of Genesis that there are the people or the children of man or the daughters of men, and then there are the people of God. And there are these two strains of society going on. Okay? And what happens is that when the men of God mingle with the children of men, being people who have rejected God, things go bad. It's just how it is. Now, God just wiped out everybody except Noah, right? And we talked about, really that's not a, as big deal as we want to make it because we're all going to die anyway, right? We went through that. We read through the genealogy and we said, so-and-so lived for so long and then they died. And we talked about how Noah's Ark was, was a, a disciplining of us. Well, the Tower of Babel is a very similar thing. And if you're a modern person like I am, when you start reading these drastic things that God does, you might lose sight of the idea that God is good. Because, it, because when you're looking through your glasses, it's difficult to think, man, God is good. Couldn't he have done this a different way? But what you need to do is look at Noah's Ark and look at the city of Babel and the Tower of Babel as God intervening with very stubborn children. Okay, But before we even get into the Tower of Babel, just to kind of settle for you, that God is good. I want to read a really famous verse that most of you have probably heard, even if you've not gone to church most of your life. And that's John 3.16. And I want you to hold on to that as we tell the story of Babel. Let me read it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John, the writer of the gospel, is telling us that God so loved you and me, that his love was so powerful that he sent his son so that you and I could have eternal life if we believe. Now, when you think about eternal life, eternal life is not just, ooh, you get to live forever. Eternal life is being able to hold the hand of God. That when you and I believe in Jesus, we're given an intimacy of God with God. We are given... We're given God's life. The reason we have eternal life is God extends his life to us. And so what John 3.16 is saying is that if you believe in Jesus, you can revisit the curse. You can revisit the image, the things that, the, that disobedience and the curse broke, and you can begin to restore that through Jesus because you're re reconnected to God. I want you to keep that in your mind as we go to Genesis chapter 11, and, and read this weird story. Now, in family lines, all of us have weird stories, right? I think if we stopped here and just asked for weird stories of your family, I'm sure all of you can have, have a weird uncle, right? Or a strange grandma, or a great-grandma, or the person that 
nobody really talks about. Or like my grandpa, when he died, we found a pardon for murder for him when he was 11 from the governor. Like, we're not quite sure, like, they didn't know he killed anybody, but he was pardoned. So we don't even know the story. So there's, there are just strange things in our past. Well, the Tower of Babel to me feels like a strange thing in the story of humanity. But this is how it goes. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven, to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them, from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so if you read back in chapter 10, you find out that there's this guy named Nimrod in the line of Shem, I mean in the line of Ham, who was the one that Noah cursed, if you remember from last week. And Nimrod is it mean, his name means rebellious, but he was a great hunter and he was a great warrior. And in Jewish legend, it's said that he had gotten his face pounded into metal, basically, the, the picture of his face, and then he would carry, have people carry it around his kingdom and make everyone bow to his image. But, you know, every pastor who gets the opportunity to preach on Nimrod has to tell you this, that you shouldn't name your child Nimrod because it only goes bad for them, right? If you name your child Nimrod, this is, it's, the story just goes bad from there. But Nimrod is 38 probably when the Tower of Babel is being built, and he's probably the one responsible for building it. So the, the people go out and they're, they decide they're going to, in this plain, where they're going to build this city and this tower. And why do they build it? They build it for two reasons. It's really fascinating. One, they build it because they want to make a name for themselves. And two, they build it because they don't want to be scattered. Now, what's the first part of image bearing? A name given to you by God. What are these people doing? They're getting a name for themselves. What's the second part of image bearing? You need to go out and rule the world. You need to take hold, multiply. But they're like, no, 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 we're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower really tall so we can see the tower and so we don't have to be scattered. So they, this, the city that these people are building, that humanity is building, is in a direct opposition to the very essence of who man is created to be. Okay, And so it says that once they've said that, that God says I'm, that he comes down to see the tower. Now, it's not that God was like, man, I think I'm going to hang out in the rings of Jupiter, and then, oh, I should go see what those guys are all doing. It's not like he didn't know they were building a city, and he didn't know they were building a tower. But there's a lot of sarcasm in this story. You see, these people said, let's make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower up to heaven. 
But God had to actually come down to see the tower because it wasn't that high. Right? So it's, it, it's a bit of sarcasm going on. So Jesus, God comes down, but then, then if you just listen carefully, God in himself, because you notice that there's a plural. It says, let us do this. So the Trinity, you get to see the humor and the sarcasm of the Trinity. They come down and they're like, hmm, man, if, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I don't think he's like, oh, shoot. They built a tower almost up to the clouds. This could go bad. We need to confuse them, right? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that if, if I let humanity keep a single language, they will become so self-absorbed and they will be so wrapped up in their little tiny towers that there will be no way back for them. They will not be able to turn around to follow me. They will be so lost and so self-absorbed. And so I need to confuse their language. And so, God confuses the language of man and scatters them out. So, God forces them to go do what they're supposed to do. Now, the third part of this that's important for you to think about is, you notice the dialogue, the story starts out with humanity saying, let us do this. And then the Jesus, or God, the Trinity says, let us do this. Most stories in the Bible involve God and man talking. But what's happened is that not only are they attacking the name of God, not only are they refusing to follow the job that they've been given as image bearers, but they've completely taken God out of the picture and they're like, we're going to do this on our own with our own wisdom. Okay? Now in the Bible, there are two cities. There's always the city of God and surprise, the city of Babel or the city of Babylon. And the city of Babel, with the tower of Babel, always represents the people going away from God. And the city of God, Jerusalem, the temple, people of God, whatever it's described as, represent people following God. Now, here's what the tower of Babel needs to tell you. It's a short little story that says one very clear thing. You and I and humanity are selfish. And left to your own devices, you will be all about yourself. Now, it doesn't take a really smart person to tell you that. right? All of you could get up here and yell really loud, you are all selfish. Humanity is selfish. It doesn't take any grand, you know, Holy Spirit moment to figure that out that you and I, left to our own devices, will be about ourselves, And not only will we be about ourselves, we individually and collectively will be about building and erecting things that represent us and give us a claim and give us meaning and give us purpose. So, we've kind of gone along, and last week we found out that the rainbow was a reminder for us, but mostly a reminder for God that he was in relationship with us and that he loved us and he wasn't going to flood the earth. But what we talked about is that God seems to use very visual things to remind us about relationship. So what I'd like you to remember when you think about the Tower of Babel 
is not all the silly things in the story. But every time you see Tower of Babel, I want you to remember two things. One, left to my own devices, I would be selfish. And two, humanity and me personally, we need a savior. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from ourselves. That's why I want to go back to John 3.16. Because what the gospel says to us, and what John 3.16 says to us, it is a response to the Tower of Babel, to selfish people. It is that God said, I love you so much, and you are on such a determined path to go away from me and do your own thing, that I'm going to send my son to die for you and offer you intimacy and restoration. And what's really exciting is, is that what you and I, if we decide to follow Jesus, is that not a selfish tower and a selfish city do we build. We get to actually together build the city of God. And so what I'd like to do is spend the rest of tonight kind of in a response to the Tower of Babel, reading 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to talk to you about what it looks like to respond to the Tower of Babel and to resist it and to not be sucked in by your own selfishness. What it looks like to be in the kingdom of Jesus and to build the city of Jesus together. So 1 Peter which on these black Bibles is page 1271, chapter 2. I'm just going to start reading in chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, imperishable, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So, when we're born of Adam, and we're people who build the Tower of Babel, we are perishable. When we're born of Jesus, we become people who don't perish. And it says, For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander and ev of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious, but to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter gives us a picture of what it looks like to begin and be part of the, of the city of God, what it looks like for you and I to build a city that's not about us. Now the first, one of the things he says in here is that Jesus is our cornerstone, okay? And in a city in ancient times, you had to have a cornerstone that was perfect on all sides so that when you built your building, it wouldn't lean sideways. And the better the cornerstone where you started from, the better the house, the more sturdy, the more vertical up and down, or horizontal, not vertical, whatever, anyway. It was, supposed to, it was a good thing, that cornerstone, however it worked, right? And what's cool here is that what I think Peter does is he lays out for you and I how we might build ourselves around Jesus, the cornerstone. So it says here, the first thing, that we're like living stones and we're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when you go about building something, if you put the cornerstone in, you got to clear out stuff, okay? You got you can't so that you can line up the bricks next to the rock. You can't just put down the cornerstone and then pile things up on top. Right on unlevel ground. So you got to clear things out. So before you start declaring praise, before you start being a priest, at the beginning of chapter 2, it tells us something we have to do. It says that we need to rid ourselves of malice and all deceit. Malice is wanting to kill people. Deceit here means crafting really big stories that deceive people. Hypocrisy basically not being authentic, envy, wanting everything that everybody else has, and slander, talking bad about everybody. So that's our first stage. We've got to get rid of all these things. So I don't know if you've ever just decided, hey, I'm going to get rid of an addiction. I'm going to get rid of talking about people. I'm going to get rid of whatever bad thing that I'm doing. It doesn't work. I've tried really hard to get rid of addictions. It doesn't work. If, if you do it on your own power, it won't work. You know, if you say, I'm going to stop smoking, and so you, you know, throw all your packs of cigarettes away, and you try really hard not to, eventually you will start smoking again. Somebody else will offer you a cigarette. In fact, when you stop smoking, everybody offers you a cigarette, right? That's how it works, because they know that you're stopping smoking. But what but Peter gives us a clue here in how you deal with all of these things that are destructive and selfish. Because if you look at these envy and malice and all these things, you can look at them as stones of Babel. The things that you build up to, to make life about you. What Peter says is, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is kind of the picture. You want to stop smoking? Start running five miles a day. And don't stop smoking. Don't even try to stop smoking. Just say, I'm going to run five miles a day. You can't smoke a couple packs of cigarettes and run five miles a day. You, I mean, you can, but you will start puking. It, it, I mean, I haven't met very many smokers who are long-distance runners who've been doing it for a long time. I haven't met a lot of athletes 
who are smoke tons of cigarettes. Because when you begin to do something good for your body, when you begin to focus on something that's really good, what happens is you can't do the bad things anymore. Because you begin to want to run faster. You begin to want to feel that runner's high, but you can't feel the runner's high if you keep smoking. Because you're just puking and it hurts, right? The idea here, what, what Peter is saying is you really want to deal with, with your own selfishness. Don't try to deal with it on your own. Begin to center your life around Jesus. Begin to center your life around Jesus. Now, what Peter says is that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, are priests, and our job is to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, when you offer a spiritual sacrifice, what you're really doing is you're saying, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about me, it's about God. So the way to crave spiritual milk is really simple. I mean, here's the thing about Christianity. There isn't ten steps to figuring it out. It's really, really simple. It's about Jesus. It's about a life centered on Jesus. It's about a life continually pointing to Jesus. So, what Peter is saying is the first thing you need to do if you're going to be a stone is not make it about your bad behavior. You need to make your life about Jesus. You need to begin to surround yourself with Jesus. You need to read Jesus. You need to pray to Jesus. You need to be around people who follow Jesus. You need to listen to people who love Jesus and hear how they understand who Jesus is. Jesus has to become the center of everything you are so that when people ask you, who are you, you say, I am about Jesus. Okay? So that's the first part of what we're supposed to do is focus on Jesus. Now, the second part, it says that in verse 9, that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people longing, belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's the thing. The practice of being the city of God is really simple. You and I have to spend our life going around saying, this is the darkness I was in. And this is how God brought me into the light. Right? This is how Jesus brought me into the light. I say this over and over again when I preach on this passage, but it's really, really important. The way that you and I can deal with the things that hold on to us and to the emptiness and all the things that seem to crowd around us is become people who out loud are willing to articulate the authentic, not the hypocritical, but the authentic darkness that we lived in. right? And that we live in. And I think some of us who've grown up in the church don't know how to articulate that very well. And some of us who've, who have grown up in the world a little bit more and had some harder experiences either don't want to talk about it because we're ashamed about it, or we like to aggrandize it, make it bigger than it was because it gives us some kind of identity. Being a follower of Jesus means that you're willing to tell people in a very accurate way the darkness that you've chosen, your selfishness, 
your Tower of Babel. You need to articulate it. Because when you're able to say, that's where I was trapped, you're able to point to Jesus and say, but this is where he brought me. I used to not be his people or his person, but I am now a person of God. And this is the light that I'm in. Which is another hard thing for us to describe as people. We, we're such a busy people that we don't really know how to talk about the light that we live in or to articulate our relationship with Jesus. In fact, when I sit and talk to a lot of you who are married and I ask you, talk to me about your wife or talk to me about your husband. Tell me why you like them. Tell me about them. You have a hard time describing that. We have a hard time describing what we like about our friends. We've, we've become a people who are still pretty blinded by our towers of Babel, that we don't even know how to articulate the goodness that we live in. So, part of being the city of God, part of being the city of God, is being people who know their darkness and know how to articulate the light they live in. Because when we're able to do that, we can point people to Jesus. We can say, here's Jesus, because this is how he engaged me. This is what it means to walk with him. This is what it means to be his city. We have to, and you know what? I can't tell you a bunch of steps to tell me your darkness and your light. You have to look deep inside and begin to speak it yourself and hear yourself talk it and figure it out. Now, the last part of this is that Peter says that being a city of God means that we have to live our lives in front of people at the level that when God comes back, even though they may have persecuted us, they will praise us for the way we serve God. Right? We're to live out a life in front of people that though we may have been persecuted, we'll be praised when our king comes and they say, wow, they were loyal to their king. Now here's the thing about Christians, and I'll just bag on all of us a little bit, is that we're kind of judgmental. And what we do is we spend a lot of our time pointing our finger at other people and at the world and saying, Look, they're not doing it right, but we have the right ideas. They're not doing the right things. And so when we get persecuted, most Christians were persecuted because we're judgmental, not because we're following Jesus. We're persecuted because we've jumped into the seat of the Pharisees, of those who have rules and regulations and the right way to do it and the right way that life should be and our government should operate and all these kinds of things. You, here's how you know that you are being persecuted for the right reason. When you are persecuted because you're selfless. When people persecute you in the world, people get angry at you because you're nice and kind and selfless to them. That you are like Jesus and you die on the cross for them. You put their needs in front of you even though that means it's going to take advantage of you then you know you're being persecuted for your king. Because Jesus, the cornerstone of who we are, is about laying his life down for other people. Not for the rest of the world getting it right. So, tonight what I want you to remember, I want Babel to be a reminder to you that you desperately need the gospel. But when you hear the story of the Tower of Babel, I want you to think, man, I'm selfish. And I need Jesus. That's all I want you to remember. I don't want you to remember that it's goofy or that 
God was sarcastic or any of those things. It's not really important. What's important about it is it's a reminder. It's an edifice. It's an altar to our selfishness. And it's a reminder that Jesus gives us an opportunity to build a city that doesn't violate his holiness, doesn't violate the Great Commission, the job that he's given us, and doesn't violate relationship. That it actually builds those things. It doesn't rip them apart. It restores what God intended in the garden. You got, anybody have a time? Oh, seven. Anybody have any questions, any thoughts? We've got about three minutes. Questions, thoughts? In the back. Right, or name them liar. Yeah. Well, I, I because I think they named them later and they watched them. But also, my suspicion is that they usually had more than one name and one of those names was the one they got remembered by. So, that's my guess. In the back corner, like dogs. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you that there's a couple interesting things. First, it's interesting that Christianity itself spreads very well because there's a lot of languages. Because if it forces governments to be split up, and so Christianity itself can't be squished as much. That's one advantage to language. But I think the other thing is just like when we got kicked out of the garden, God was going to send us out of the garden. The garden was just the beginning place. But we pushed ourselves out. I suspect that God was going to give us all different languages and it was going to be a beautiful thing. But we forced God's hand and he gave it to us in a way that confused us and didn't help us any. And I think as humanity, as you watch us walk away from God and God slowly remove his presence from us, some of the consequences and disciplines that he gives us aren't things he wasn't going to do. It's just that we didn't get it in its glory. Yes, he was going to give them a king. But they did it on their own. Sure. Because God kind of confused our language about that. Like, from my experience, 
point. If I try to tell you what God is, I end up talking about what God has done in my personal life. Right. And I think it was you a couple of years ago that challenged us to find ways of talking about God without talking about what He's done. Yeah. And the only way that I can do that is, is when I tap into the Holy Spirit and I speak about the reality of who God is, hmm. as opposed to what I feel like God has done. That's a very good point. I like that. And I'm going to pray. Oh, well, Hannah, and then we'll stop right. Right, so you want me to go first in that way. You get thrown down on me. Very, very good. There you go. No, that's that's good. I think that what mo- what's been helpful for me is to realize that at the core of most of my behaviors is that I'm selfish. And so I need to tell my darkness from that perspective. And a lot of times I want to think about don't want to think about myself as a selfish person. But that is the reality. I do a lot of the things that I do and have done because I like me and I want to protect me and I want to keep me safe. So telling talking about my sin from a perspective of my selfishness was I look at my life and the choices that I've made, the way I've treated people, being willing just to be brutally honest about my own selfishness. I think that on the other end, it's been really helpful for me, and I like what he said, in, in talking not just about what God has done for me, but really talking about God. And and beginning to try to, to explain who he is as a person to me, not necessarily what he's done. You know, like, when you ask me why I like my wife, I could say, well, she makes great cookies. She's, you know, but really the reality is there is an essence and aura of my wife that's just absolutely knocked down beautiful that strikes me, right? That's why I like my wife. It has nothing to do with her awesome cookies. That's just a bonus, right? And it's key. If you get a wife, you need awesome cookies. But, you know, just she can buy them. If, if there's, but anyway, you know, does understand what I? I need to pray because we're running out of time. So, but we can talk about it later. Dear God, thank you for this community and their willingness to to push me. Thank you for this, for the way that you have just laid your life down for us, and that you are just that you want us to be in relationship with us. You. You want us to wait with expectancy for you to do stuff and to love us and to care for us. And you're just so big and so powerful. And it's just hard to comprehend. And so, God, I just ask that you would speak to us tonight in our singing and in our praying and in our eating together. I ask that in your name. Amen.